On this episode of the Panjoy Podcast, our guest is Glenn Phillips. Glenn is a master's student in social work currently, but served as a sergeant in the United States Army and Army National Guard. In 2012, Glenn served as a specialist, minesweeper, and team leader on 2nd Squad, 1st Platoon, Bravo Company 164. Episode 5 of the Panjoy Podcast starts now. <laughs> at yeah. you called me at let's see 11 24 p.m that sounds about right i wonder what i would call him for i don't know just tell me i looked so handsome it's true yeah. that's i mean that's what i wanted to call him. <laughs> <laughs> so today on my facebook memories is around the time that we were supposed to fly home and it reminded me of do you remember how we missed our chalk flight on the Chinook? Yeah. Because <laughs> or, it was supposed it was at like midnight, so all these birds land and only what's his name? Captain Cathrell, the PA, only person to get on the birds. I've forgotten about that. I, I remember watching them land and being like, Well, that's weird. Wonder what they're doing here. And then they took <laughs> off and found out like hours later that that was supposed to be our ride off Sparrow yeah. Guard. I just remember first Sergeant Cobb walking out and he's like, I wanted everybody to go home together anyways. This works out perfectly. Oh, I wanted to punch him when he said that. <laughs> oh man. Well, that's uh that speaks to a lot of the inefficiencies that the military can be <laughs> incredibly guilty of. Uh, yes. I, yeah, no kidding. Not, the inefficiencies that will come up repeatedly throughout the process of recording <laughs> this thing, I'm sure. Gosh, man, I just That that was just extra frustrating though. Yeah. Because we were like, all they would have had to say is, "Hey, have your bags packed." We were ready in like an hour. Yeah, we did not need any prep time to get ready to leave Sparwangar. Well, I think at that <laughs> point, most of our stuff was already packed. Yeah, yeah, yeah we were. They yeah. told us we were going home like that day. They didn't tell us it was at midnight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember. Um, yeah, now you mentioned that, I I, re- I remember that because I wanted to be able to talk about how my last firefight was only like 24 hours from getting on the bird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it ended up being more like 48, but still. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember when the birds actually came for us, just being real sad when when we missed one. Yeah. Actually, if I remember correctly, we missed those birds, and we went on that mission because of that. We weren't supposed to go on that mission. Really? Some of y'all did. I didn't go. Like that, you're I didn't about go. that final night mission, like that yeah. night raid. Yeah, I, I didn't go on that. That's the one with the EOD. It was actually a kind of a bad firefight because Klein almost got shot, and then the EOD guy caught one to the helmet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, don't, EOD... I think we weren't supposed to go on that. I think it was supposed to be a very small element that was leaving behind, like a couple, like the trail element. Yeah. It, and because we had a whole bunch of people, we took a whole bunch of people. That's why all the people that never got their CIB finally got to go on a mission and get their CIB. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, but they weren't supposed to be able to do that. Like, we were supposed to be gone. Yeah. If I remember correctly. It was correctly. like people like Dominguez and Tacroni who went on that mission. Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. I, I, you mentioned that because I remember, I remember me and Kohler were kind of running the show. Duke was out there. Um, I don't know. There's a, it's actually a pretty good story in that, but I think I'll have to save it for later when we start talking about ripping in and out with units. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because it, it just speaks to how much you can pick up, how much knowledge you kind of accrue over the course of that nine months and how 
when you try to pass it on, sometimes it falls on deaf ears. Yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, I had I had cleared literally with my fingers swapped a uh, a path across this trail and like was very specific in my instructions not to step outside of it. I go back, guys are just walking down the road. So yeah, yeah, good times. So we're sitting here with Glenn Phillips, who was in second squad of first platoon. Uh, and he served under Sergeant Nintz and with those dudes. So he's able to bring a little bit of a different perspective to the table from Curtis and I because for the first, what, half of the deployment, our squads, except for on bigger missions, went on separate patrols, right? So, uh, Glenn, give us a quick introduction to yourself and tell us, like, you know, why'd you join the Army? Why'd you choose the infantry? Give us, give us the, the short and sweet. All right. So I joined the army because I had just failed out of the local community college. My, well, my later ex-wife was, her cousin was in the army. It was like, oh, that's the coolest thing you'll ever do. So I went to the recruiter and he gave me his used car salesman pitch and I got offered wheeled vehicle mechanic, um, infantryman and predator drone operator. Mm. And I decided that I didn't want to be the guy sitting in a air-conditioned room somewhere in Las Vegas. So I joined the infantry like, yeah, this is going to be the coolest thing ever. Um, got sent to Fort Stewart, where I was basically told I was never going anywhere because they were done with deployments to Iraq. Mm-hmm. So we did our training exercises, and eventually we got word that we were going to Afghanistan. Yeah, you guys were the first batch of privates too right after the Iraq deployment. Yeah, and, so uh, we were we were on rear D for, I don't remember when y'all got back, but we were on rear D I got there in August, so it was like two or three months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, a couple months. We got back in like middle of October. Yeah. So I thought I thought yesterday it said April, and I was like, man, why didn't they send them on to Iraq? <laughs> no, I think the sense. only person who almost went was uh, King. I think King almost got sent over, but it was just enough time left where they were like, eh, we're not going to bother. Yeah, right. Well, so that was kind of an interesting thing for me because I was, I was like the second round of privates to come to the unit after the previous deployment to Iraq which was a pretty, pretty gnarly one. They were in uh, Sauter city. Yeah. And, um, so it was like a very similar experience for me and that I had a big, long train up. I mean, I was in the unit for eight or nine months before we deployed and things like that. So it was very similar to what you, I mean, you had a long time, you had a year and a half before we deployed. Yeah. Just about probably longer than that actually. Yeah. Which at that time was a, a long period of time for someone to go without deploying. That was kind of the end of that era. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Cause up to that point, like third ID and one six four had been twelve on twelve off for yeah. since two thousand three since the invasion of Iraq, so that was what twenty ten. Yeah. So that's has you know four. I think I think Bravo Company was on its. I think that was the third, fourth, or fifth deployment for the company, uh, to Iraq, and then uh, of course then Afghanistan came down the pipeline. Which that was a wild twist because that, you know, that 18 months, all you're doing is mechanized training. So you're doing gunnery tables, you're running dismount patrols out of Bradley's and stuff. And then it was this instant switch. Yeah. I think we were, we were like halfway through our last gunnery table in the Bradley's. And then it was like, nope, nope, got to start humping gear again. I was, (laughs) I was very disappointed because at that point I didn't give a shit about being, you know, oh, oh, badass infantryman. I just wanted to sit in the Bradley turret and, you know, eat Twinkies and, play video games might as well go park it (laughs) yeah um yeah we switched gears out of the mechanized stuff and like do you remember i remember the river mill kind of ebbing and flowing basically as soon as we got back it was like oh we're afghanistan we're going to afghanistan 
And I just remember thinking, like, okay, yeah, right. But then yeah. there was a, a serious increase in rumors leading up to <laughs> to whenever we found out. Do you remember that similar yeah. kind of vibe? Yep. And then I remember nobody knew a date for a long time. Like nobody yeah. even knew a month. It was just like, oh, it's coming. It's coming. And I kind of remember hearing, I think we were actually at NTC when they were like, oh, well, it got pushed to the left. You're leaving sooner. And we're like, okay, but <laughs> yeah. sooner from when? Like nobody actually knows when we're supposed to be leaving. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, you'll figure it out. Really cool. Thanks, man. Yeah. And I think that speaks to um, how like weird it was in the lead up to that. Because when we led up to Iraq, like, you know, I got there in March of 2009. And we knew we were going to Afghanistan or sorry, Iraq in October, Yeah, October, November. You know, they had that timeline not nailed down. And then for us, it was, I mean, even up to the week we deployed, we still didn't know exactly what day. You know, because I yeah. remember everybody sweating whether we would get uh, St. Um, Patrick's Day off. That was like our last four-day weekend before yeah. before we deployed. So, but we did get it off. Well, I mean, like the day I wasn't, like in hindsight, isn't super surprising. We didn't know the day because like the logistics of that are just a complete nightmare. Um, but not even knowing like generally, like the week. Because yeah. even yeah. when I showed up three weeks earlier, like, well, it could be next week. It could be in three weeks. And then, like, one day they're like, okay, you're going tomorrow. We're like, oh, right, we're going tomorrow. It's like, just kidding. It's been pushed another day. <laughs> and then at, like, at 10 p.m. that night, it's like, hey, 1 o'clock, work call tomorrow. We are leaving tomorrow. I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> I was almost late to leave. I was with Nagurn in Savannah. I was actually at, like, Bass Pro Shops or whatever it is. It was out off of 16 in Savannah. I was picking up some last-minute stuff. And I was just yeah. like, dude, yeah. we're going to be late. Like, we got to fucking move. <laughs> and my poor mom drove my car from savannah all the way back to home in new york uh, so she hadn't driven a standard in i don't even know how long and she was like oh i'll just take it back and just hopped in cruised out 17 hours later she was home man that wow. had to be a long 17 hours for her <laughs> i felt so yeah, bad no for her. yeah oh man so before before the deployment like you, you found out that you were going, and then I've heard, you know, several times the story of the of the, the come to Jesus moment at NTC. Yeah. Uh, and it seems like universally, and I wasn't there, but it seems universally for everyone that was there that that was kind of like the moment where like, oh shit, this is going to be real. Um, did that have that same kind of effect for you? Yeah. So the way I remember it is basically, you know, we were in the box. So everybody had in the box, you know, like you're two or three week, like no phones, you're doing your training exercises, you're going, you're going, you're going. So we were running probably 19, 20 hour days, you know, we're all exhausted. And all of a sudden, our night mission gets canceled. And kind of all the platoon starts gather up their dues and like, little circles and they're like, all right, hey, listen, we just got off the phone with the commander of the unit, that's where we're going to be. Uh, and it was basically a conversation of, it doesn't sound good. Here are the things they're finding. You know, these are the, like, the tactics that the Taliban are using in that area. It's going to be a really hard fight. Yeah. And then it was kind of, to hear Sarnat talk like that, you're like, all right, this is, like, yeah. this is real. This isn't just him, like, trying to get us ready for some, like, gung-ho shit. It was, it was legitimate. Yeah, because he, he wasn't one to exaggerate. Right, no. exactly. Yeah. He was the most straightforward person I've ever met. So when he sits you down and says, this is going to be a fight, people are going to get hurt, you yeah. listen. And you're like, oh, shit, yeah. okay. I have, I have a very 
very detailed memory of his like face and his demeanor and stuff was not him. Like you said, he's just so consistent. Yeah. And yep. he's always just flat, like in a great yeah. way than that. He's always reliable for that. But you could tell he was, he was like, fuck, I got to yeah. tell these guys that people are going to get hurt. People are going to die. You yeah. know? And I mean, to a certain extent, I'm sure he was shaken too. Cause he, yeah. Yeah. Like, that's, that's not an easy conversation to have. And it's not an easy conversation to have. And also realize you're a part of that group too. Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah. he hadn't had a combat deployment either. Yeah. Well, yeah, not like a not like a combat combat deployment where he right, had right, seen right. combat. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he deployed to Iraq with us. You know, that was his. You know, I think that was actually his first deployment. I think that was his first because he was yeah. in Tradoc for a while. A long, yeah, a long time. And so, you know, we inherited him towards the tail end of Iraq, maybe four or five months left there, and, uh, um, you know, he he hadn't like well, all of us in Iraq, we didn't see any combat at all yeah. for the, in our squad and a platoon or whatever. So yeah. Yeah. Anyways. So we're yeah. So we're all sitting there, you know, and he kind of has this moment where he takes a breath and he's like, "You're not supposed to have your phones, but given that you just found this out, you know, they pulled out the boxes of phones and they're like, go call your parents, go call your wives, you know, whoever you have at home that cares, just go call them and let them know, you know, tell them what you're comfortable with." Uh, so I remember walking, pacing back and forth in the back of a covered LMTV using Nagurin's phone because I didn't have service. Mm just basically telling my parents like, hey, just know that this could be a really, really ugly nine months and I really need you guys to be prepared for me to not come home. Yeah. Which is yeah. something that's so hard to tell your parents. You know, my parents have been there my whole life, literally. And you're yeah. like, hey, listen, I might die. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, I think I didn't even bother to call home after that because i just didn't know how to go about putting it together and i knew we'd be going home for thanksgiving and stuff like that so like they obviously knew we were going to afghanistan and uh up to at that point but i remember like sitting down uh at thanksgiving after you know, before dinner i think after dinner i was telling everybody's like, okay like this is what's going on this is what we can expect and then i had a couple of days later I sat down with my parents and talked about like what I wanted to have done with my stuff. Like, you know, if right. I'm killed, I want you to do this with my bank account and my truck. And that was a really kind of hard conversation to have with, like you said, with your parents. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's something you expect. It's not kind of a backwards thing. Usually it's your parents telling you yeah. what's going to yeah. happen if, when they get to a certain age or, you know, a health level. So yeah. it's kind of, a, I'm sure it was a mind fuck for them too, to be like, yeah. why is my son giving me you know last instructions like this should be the other way around yeah. yeah yeah for sure and i mean to this day i haven't really told my parents like i haven't given them a lot of detail on what we actually went through yeah same just because you know i i'm lucky enough to have made it home in one piece with no physical injuries i don't think they need the gory details of what we went through yeah. Yet here you are. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm probably not going to tell them to watch this. <laughs> yeah. oh, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Same here, man. Like I've I've not said hardly anything to either one of my parents or anybody really. I mean, really, the only people I've ever talked to in detail is like you know the guys. You know, talked to my wife, but you know, I haven't really spoken with them about any of this stuff. So all it's kind of funny. All this stuff's going to come out through this yeah. podcast. <laughs> For sure. Hmm. It's like that. I don't know, that, that whole MTC come to Jesus and then the phones, you know, this kind of, there's kind of set this build up, set these expectations for what Afghanistan was going to be like. Oh, for sure. Um, you know, I, we, we talked before about how we all thought it was going to be mountains or we thought it was going to be like the movie Restrepo, which had just come out. Yeah. Um, 
So how did, you know, now that these expectations had been set, how did it measure up? So I remember being on the Chinook, but I was far enough in that I couldn't really see the landscape, you know, as we're flying from CAF. So my first impact is CAF, of course, where we pretty sure we all went to like TGI Fridays at first. I'm like, oh, Afghanistan's not so bad. This is cool. Like, whatever. Hell yeah, salsa night. It was, um, everybody had those, like, uh, the spring break Kandahar airfield shirts. Yeah. I remember that. I remember those. Yeah. And you're just, like, walking the boardwalk, and you're like, all right, this isn't so bad. Like, there's a hockey rink over there. And then Mm -hmm. you get to the runway, and we fly out, and I'm like, I couldn't see anything. We land at Spurwingard. I'm like, okay, this is, this is pretty legit from what I was expecting. You know, I was basically expecting we were going to be unloading and setting up GP mediums with fans running, so we got a cross breeze. Right. And... So I guess first impression of the actual cop was like, this is this is pretty good. You yeah, know, we could be living a lot worse. It's funny. Everybody has said that. You know, I think we, we've all, everybody we've asked has said that exact same thing. Like, well, it's going to be cots and GP mediums for nine months, you know? So it was a relief to get off and see like hard structures and stuff. I definitely think we got spoiled as far as living conditions went. Big time. Yeah. Even yeah. Zangabad had harsher conditions than we did, really. Yeah. In yeah. some ways. Massive car. And Archer yeah. did. And that was the brigade fob. Yeah, right. That place oh, was terrible. Man. Yeah. And I'm trying to think of the first time that I actually like because we had the the sniper OP, but I hadn't really gone up there. Like we first got there and I remember Baker and Rosie went up there and we're looking around. I was like, oh shit, can we go up there? Like, you know, I'm I've been in the army for two years at this point, but like I've never been on a deployment. I've never been there before. I have no right. idea what the hell I can do. Mm-hmm. So I'm just like minding my own business. And I remember we did uh, platoon level PT oh and ran up the hill. So stupid. <laughs> I'm looking out over it. I'm like, all right, where's all the mountains? And then you run back down and you can see to the south. You can see the reggae's. And you're like, okay, there's some. But like, yeah, I thought this was going to be all mountains. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, same here, man. I remember doing that. Well, I remember doing that PT run and thinking this is fucking stupid. And I just, I remember expecting to get shot. Like, yeah, you know, like we're here. It's, yeah. it's the perfect thing. It was a defilade. Like a PKM could just whack right up the formation. You know, yeah, thirty mm-hmm. something dudes running up a hill in the yeah. wide open. Yeah, man, imagine explaining that to your commander. <laughs> yeah. Thirty dudes on day three. Well, we decided to do some platoon PT, Sarge. Well, yeah. you know, we went for a run. Yeah, yeah, that was dumb. So. That was your first impressions of the landscape. Like I said, it was flat. We were all yeah. expecting mountains and stuff. So yeah. So you trying know. to like, trying to understand how different it was from what I was expecting, and then to go out on that first rip patrol, mm-hmm. and I mean, those guys were walking on the roads. They were like, yeah. "Oh, you know, be careful walking on the roads," as they're just trucking right down the roads. I'm like, "Yo, you guys are fucking crazy." And we went to um. I'm trying to remember. I think it was an A and P checkpoint. It used to be right at the north end. Um, it almost looked like an old prison that they had turned into. It was like a hardened concrete structure. I don't think we ever went there more than a handful of times. Kyber, right? Right at yeah, the, yeah, right at the north end of uh, Hyena. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we stopped there, and then I think we walked back. I think we went through the bazaar. I'm trying to remember. We either went through the bazaar. We went out east a little bit but not like just south of kyber there was like a like a mini bazaar so if you you went south of route hyena like whatever that village was it was right across the street from kyber yeah there was a bazaar there because we went there a few times yeah 
Yeah, so like, I mean, there's I some pictures. Uh, I'll throw them up. It's like some camels with like a whole bunch of like grass on them or whatever. And that was that village just south of Kyber. Yeah, yeah. So we like we tinkered around there, and then we went back, and I was like, "All right, you know, we heard that this place is terrible, but that didn't really seem that bad." Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things uh, about that those first few weeks is like our squad actually ended up getting into two or three firefights before you guys ever. Because you were never, you guys were never on those patrols with us. And I no, remember we were so mad too. Everybody was so salty. That, you know, we'd be like, everybody would walk up to Nince and be like, "Yo, can we just go out with third like one time?" They always get shot at. Like, we just want to get our CIBs. And it's like, "No, nah, man, your time will come. Just like, chill out." Yeah, yeah. right. Well, I remember um, coming back from the first one, and talking to Brown. He was like, "Man, you got, you know, what was it like?" And I was like, "Well, you know, we got shot at and we shot back at him, and you know." And then uh, the so second, descriptive. yeah, right. Well, we had a whole episode dedicated to us. So I figured I wouldn't uh, regurgitate. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, but the second, the second firefight came down. That's the one where Perez got pinned down that hill, and uh, you know, yeah, I remember walking, and that's when we got smoked so bad walking back to the trucks because we were like covering open ground. And I remember getting back from that one. And I think it was Brown again. But like, man, I can't believe you guys got another firefight. And at that point, I was like, yeah, it kind of sucks, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, to make it even worse, you guys were driving the trucks that we walked back to. So you had to hear us getting into a firefight, sitting in your truck, being like, these motherfuckers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's what we did for the like at least a couple of them. Is you know We would just drop you off. We... We started calling ourselves the second squad taxi service, like <laughs> subtly. You know, it wasn't like something we advertised. People would be like, oh, second squad taxi service going out. Yeah. And we right. would just shuttle you guys and you would get in a firefight and we would just sit there all pissed off. Oh, man. We talked to Nance about y'all's first firefight and it seemed fairly mild. I mean, I it was know. very, I mean, it was, it was exhilarating because it's like time number one, but it was, yeah. there was just a, a gray putt to the south of where we were walking and we just were walking along a wall. So nobody was really in any imminent danger right yeah uh, and they took a couple pop shots at us and of course everybody just unloaded on an entire gray pot yeah yeah that was one thing that we always we always did a good job of was yeah. overwhelming oh, firepower sure. yeah. you know because we didn't have to be sparse with our ammo we could just blow through it yeah. <laughs> yeah. fast forward to 2017 and infantrymen had to inventory their bullets before and after every mission that would oh, be really Dude, yeah, I walked in, like, when I was a pilot, we landed inside some fob to do some thing. I, why Apaches were landing, I don't know. It's not our thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but there were a bunch of infantry guys around, so obviously we're going to show them the aircraft and stuff. Mm-hmm. And they were like, yeah, when we go out to do these KLEs, we have to, like, count our rounds. We had to sign a hand receipt for every one of our rounds. When oh. we come back, we have Oof. to count them again. <laughs> like, they're not allowed to touch their weapons when they go on the KLEs. It's like... Dude, Dude, that's that's awful. That sounds like an asshole sergeant major to me. Yeah, that sounds like uh, global war on terror in its twentieth year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's basically becoming a garrison war at this point. Yeah, yeah it really yeah. is. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, all these cupcake patrols, everyone's getting into little firefights, but it's really not getting very serious. Yeah, like even the firefights, we're coming back. We're like, oh, that was so much fun. Like yeah. we're we're not taking it serious yet um when did when did it get serious for you when when did you know it's like okay this isn't fun anymore like now i have like serious concerns about getting back yeah well so the way second squad did it is we split up into like three smaller fire teams so the first team was 
Brown, Smothers, and Hewlett, who did the clearing for the first three months. And then it was me, Wilkins, Nagurn, and Mayo was in charge of us. And then there was like Duke, Kobos, Akoa, I don't remember, and Ebro was like the mm-hmm. assault element. Uh, so I would say it probably got real for me when I switched to being the clearing guy. Yeah. And it was kind of this like, all right, now I'm in front. You know, now I'm the guy who everybody has to rely on. And there were a couple of missions that were like, all right, this is pretty scary. I don't really like this. Um, Minotaur Down was really kind of when it hit home for me because we we came around the corner. So it was the Minotaur and Nagurn and that, well, the Minotaur, then me, then Nagurn driving the Minotaur. And I remember we came around one of the bends in Sketcha. And just immediately the Minotaur got lit up. I mean, Mm. they were shooting everywhere at this thing, around it. So I'm just sitting behind this Minotaur listening to stuff like, ding, 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 ding. Like, fool, man, this is not fun at all. Yeah. And so we keep walking, and then there's the typical, like, rocks in a row on the road. Mm. Like, all right, man, no problem. We got the Minotaur. We're golden. And I watched the Minotaur drive forward and off the edge into the river. And I just look at Nagurn, and I was like, dude. What was the look on his face after he drove a $500,000 piece of equipment into a stream? don't think I've ever seen a face that described, like, embarrassment and shame. (laughs) You just look back, and he's like. (laughs) And everybody else is looking at him the same way. Like, dude, are you serious? What did you do? Which, I mean, granted, like. He has this huge, it was like the first remote control that had ever been built that they were like, (laughs) here's this piece of really expensive military equipment. Use it with an original Nintendo controller. Good. Yeah, right. (laughs) I mean. Can't hold it against him. Yeah, I can't say I blame him for it. Yeah. And so then, of course, it's Mayo and I just in the prone while everybody figures out what the hell to do. And a couple of the times the conversation came up. Well, we know there's an IED there. Let's just turn on the GPR and go through it. Hmm. How about I was like, no? I, I, I don't, I don't want to do that. I'm the guy who's going to have to go through it. Yeah. Um, and I mean, like, nints and stuff that like that got poo pooed pretty quickly, and that was not an option. Mm-hmm. So then it was, we pushed back, um, and I think when we started to move back is when the guy popped around the corner and took a couple pop shots at us in the ricochet that hit Boyce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and that dude got lit up. I mean, every single person that could shoot shot down that alleyway. Yeah, yeah, right. And then eventually the decision was made to move into that compound that was just behind us. And oh, I remember right. walking up to like clearing up to the front door of that compound past guys that had already, you know, they're laying there. So I know it's clear, but I felt like my heart was going to explode out of my chest. And I was, I froze in that doorway. I remember I couldn't even walk in there to like look around. Hmm. And so the A&A ended up walking in first, but I just, I sat down underneath that little like straw awning for probably 20 minutes, just thinking like my heart was about to explode out of my chest. Mm. Did you ever feel like you were properly trained and prepared to do that job to clear? No, No. I, (laughs) I, you know, honestly though, I don't know how you can properly train someone for stuff like that. Like we did the little lane at CAF where you like go through Mm-hmm. but I mean, it's an ever evolving battle that we're in. So it's not always consistently going to be okay. You know, pull out like, what did we use in the beginning? The Valen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or the, Oh, was it the Valen? I it can't was the Valen, the Chia 
mm-hmm. and the mine hound. Yeah. yeah. The Chia was the carbon rod detector. Yeah. And we switched to that one after Pinnock and Lily, and that was like the. Yeah. That was the big switch for that. Yeah. And then immediately switched right to the mine hound because they're yeah. like, Chia can't catch everything. We're like, yep. <laughs> i know like it's it felt like the whole like assignment of people as um clearing guys was like an afterthought they didn't consider that they needed to train these people specifically to do this job sure and i yeah. think future units did do that they sent them to like courses while they were stateside i think actually 138 did that but we never got like pre-deployment training on it, it was all like ojt yeah um and it's really like an mos you know, yeah. it's like it's like EOD light or like the combat engineers, really. Yeah, for sure. That's I mean, uh, and to have like just a bunch of PFCs, like, hey man, like here's a thirty five thousand dollar piece of equipment with state of the art ground penetrating radar that has to be dialed in specifically to work. Yeah. Go walk. Oh, and by the way, your your squad leader is going to be yelling at you to walk faster. Yeah. 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 I think that was um, that's something that. You just kind of learn. Oh, we're talking about that last, that last, well, my last firefight, but our last firefight as a platoon, like intact, was uh, a pretty good demonstration of how long it takes you to really learn, like where the IEDs are placed. Because you, you, you figure it out, you, you figure out how to maneuver, uh, maneuver in the space. And then when you get to those little hot spots, you know, those road crossings or those w- whatever, you, you really do slow down, you take your time, and you sweep and you look and things like that. But then when you're walking down a grape road, like you're not you're not sweeping for anything, you know, you're just hauling ass to try and get to the you know to the next next little hump to climb or whatever. Yeah, well, to a certain extent too. I mean, the grape row was pretty much a guarantee IED free. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you, you could you figured out where they were, where they weren't, where they probably wouldn't be, you know. And, but it just took us it took us till basically throat chop really to to figure out how to move how to move in that space without so much concern and worry about stepping on IEDs, you know? Yeah, because, I mean, even at the beginning when we're walking roads, you're understandably terrified. So you're sweeping every inch of the road in front of you. Probably wasn't necessary uh, until you got to those choke points and those natural um, lines of travel that we talked about in previous episodes, but we didn't know that at the time. We didn't... We got, like, that... IED land at calf. That was we're looking for landmines at first. Yeah, yeah. You know, our, <laughs> You're looking for like P and M mines. Yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> our mind wasn't in the right place, and that's not our fault. It's, but yeah, I never felt like we were properly prepared to do that job. No, that was. No. I mean, it, and even the lane was only ten or fifteen minutes long. Yeah, it was a joke. Really. Yeah. yeah. Just like better than nothing. Better than nothing. <laughs> True. But, yeah. I mean, they pretty much taught us how to turn it on. Uh, I seem to remember like they really harped on tripwires at that lane for at yeah. least part of it. Mm-hmm. Not not a thing. Not yeah. a thing the the lane with. that the EOD guys, our EOD guys, set up for us at Sparrowgar was way better. Yeah, oh, for sure, significantly better. Yeah, I actually remember the lane at Calf, and it was my turn to like go down it, and I think I I, I stepped on the ID. <laughs> I was like, and I was like, oh fuck. <laughs> Like, I'm gonna die. So I yeah, I man. backed up off of one lane onto the other one to like get out of the way, and I stepped on the IED in that lane, and the guy's like, "Oh, you're dead," and I was like, "Oh, that's funny." Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, some probably some fucking pogue out there doing the lanes, anyways. I don't even think those guys were EOD. 
No, I think they. I don't even think they were army. Were they? Yeah, I think civilians? they were contractors. Oh yeah. yeah, they were. They were freaking contractors. What a joke, man. Yeah. yeah. There's a whole episode to be done about the racket that these companies have got on oh, sending God. people to Afghanistan for pointless jobs. <laughs> yeah. But that's a different topic completely. By the way, if you happen to be one of those companies looking for people to do pointless jobs, <laughs> I'm free. My starting salary is $200,000 a year, but I'll only work six months out of the year. So Yeah, right. Pandrapodcast at gmail.com. Oof, joke's on you. I would do $100,000. Remember the guys who washed our laundry? Yeah, little Filipino I'd do that guys. for hundred grand. Shit. No. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, they had like KBR and companies like that, which... We won't get too political, but KBR had the racket, man. It was like they're going in there, paying the American government's paying for these contracts, and then like in in Iraq, for example, all the people that they employed were from like the Philippines and India, and you know, so they were probably getting you know dollars on the day, and then KBR is just sitting back, fat cats lighting cigars with hundred dollar bills, laughing all the way to the bank, you know. When it got real bad was right before I went to Afghanistan, so end of Obama, right before Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, they had like that arbitrary troop cap. Mm-hmm. So like mm-hmm. aviation units, what they would do is they wouldn't bring their own mechanics. They would only bring like the crew, like the line crew chiefs for the companies, but all the people that did like the resets and the heavy maintenance, they wouldn't bring them. They would hire contractors to do all that work. So we would bring half of our formation because we couldn't bring all of them. And they would pay a whole bunch of schmucks a hundred grand a year to work <laughs> on the helicopters instead <laughs> while we got privates that make 25 grand a year sitting at home because there's a troop cap yeah right <laughs> if, i feel like we ran into a similar thing in iraq because when i was in iraq is when we like withdrew and all yeah. combat forces left mm-hmm. and i remember i was home on leave and everybody's like do you have to go back and i was like yeah i have to go back when all this <laughs> stuff came out in the news and they helped they showed the trucks crossing the kuwaiti uh-huh. border and when i got back we were no longer second brigade combat team we were second brigade advise and assist team and then that was around the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so the contractors were laughing all the way to the bank as well, the American mm-hmm. ones anyways. Yeah, so, it's all racket. Yeah. I think that's one, that's actually, we, we should take a little bit of time to explain to civilian audiences how sure. whenever you're deployed, you know, essentially you have these massive, massive bases like CAF. And Iraq was full of them. Uh, Afghanistan really only got Kabul and Kaf. Yeah. And maybe Jalalabad. J- yeah, Jalalabad was sizable. Any, any place that had an air base. So yeah. Any place that aircraft were stationed, you had a pretty decent footprint. Yeah, and I remember flying into, um, that was actually an epiphany for me. I was flying into Fob Striker, which I think is just north of Baghdad. And it was one of the big, huge ones. And uh, I was looking out the, the little porthole of the Chinook. And thinking there's nothing but tan buildings all the way to the horizon. I mean, it was like a city, you know? Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, okay, this is fucking stupid. Like, we don't need to be spending this kind of money so people can have Pizza Hut and Taco Bell. Like, this is why it's costing us a trillion dollars <laughs> a year, you know, to fight this war. So, yeah, but would you want to fight that war without Pizza Hut and Taco Bell? We did. Yeah, That's we the did. That sucks about it. <laughs> <laughs> and they fucking rocketed the Pizza Hut. We got to oh, go yeah. back and they were like, nah, Pizza Hut's closed. A rocket hit it. And you're like, God damn it. Yeah. So we had one thing. We took <laughs> yeah. it away. We did have TGI Fridays. I hit that thing up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for like 40 bucks a plate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were like, oh, you can get a milkshake. And it was like those Gatorade sport shakes. Yeah, those are gross. Yeah. Remember, but- uh, Boyce was so excited to get his damn milkshake. <laughs> With yep. his, his uh, fentanyl lollipop in his mouth. I'm getting a yep. milkshake. 
<laughs> not to get to America, buddy. <laughs> oh, man. Poor bastard. I wonder how long it was before he actually had a real milkshake. Germany. Uh, you think they gave him one in the hospital? I, I don't bet think he, they I did. bet he could have found one out. We'll have to ask him. Yeah, we'll have to ask him. He's on here soon, but, but I've always wondered that. <laughs> <laughs> For those who don't know, yeah, these massive fobs, you know, um, forward operating base is kind of uh, not really an apt description. It's more like, a, like you, like Curtis saying, more like an air base. Like it's a fully functioning city of thousands and thousands of people. And then you go out and the, the, you go into fobs or cops that get smaller depending on the unit. So we were on a company cop and uh and so usually generally at the fob like life is not that hard you know i mean you're working i mean everybody in the military works no matter what your job is especially when deployed but you know it's a different it's a just this different world i mean it's essentially a mini america and they a lot of people probably go their entire deployment and never even see an afghan face you know so um well i mean when i was back in 2017 i was on basis like that I, I lived on calf for several months i lived on jbad for several months uh it's like going to your office job depending on what your job is of course um but for me it was like going to my office job i i woke up i went to work i did my work which was flying the deadliest attack helicopter in the world and then i went and i got went to the px and i got whatever i needed and then i went to bed well i remember we lived on we lived on uh, two fobs in the middle six months of the Iraq deployment. So the first three months we were on a checkpoint. It wasn't that great. Last three months were freaking miserable. It was it was worse than Afghanistan living conditions by a long shot and like no sleep, pulling guard, all that stuff. But those middle three months on those big fobs, we were at QS and then we moved to Missoul. But QS, man, they had like a bus service, you know. So you could take the bus to the defect and they had you'd have stir fry and and Mexican food and like all these crazy. It was. It was not bad in terms of like the living conditions, but also it didn't need to be there because these people could have gone there 12 months just sleeping on cots and eating MREs and, you know. Well, and that's the thing is the Army's designed not to have that infrastructure. Like, yeah. we, we built it into ourselves. We have cooks. We have laundry mm-hmm. services. We have people that do all these jobs, but we there's not very many of them. So we don't have enough cooks to have cooks in a defac forward deployed constantly for 20 years yeah and that's what I've, I've always had a pretty radical idea and maybe i should uh sell it to the coin thinkers somewhere the army college or whatever but i thought when you put a platoon out on a on a cop or on a on a op or something like they should be like raising a garden and having goats and stuff like that to feed themselves like you could you know you could assign the shit bags to goat duty and they could be the ones slaughtering the goat that day and putting it on the barbecue, you know? And that way you don't have to spend all that money, take all those resources and all that time and everything to get these external things into that place in order for it to support itself when it could just do it right there on the spot. Yeah, but the, I'm pretty sure the food that you give the goats would be higher quality than the MREs you give soldiers. Yeah. So I think yeah, they're probably still saving sure. money. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's true. But uh, the MREs are twelve dollars a piece. Now that was ten years ago. Let's tell them, tell them what they are now. Well, I mean, ten twelve dollars a piece to who? <laughs> right. With two dollars to make. Yeah, fifteen dollars at the PX. Free mm-hmm. to me. How many? Uh, how many? How many gallons of fuel does it take to fly them to Afghanistan and put them on a truck and drive them out to Cop Spare Wingar? Yeah. So, anyways. 
But yeah, I mean, it's a good point. There's there's a huge backbone to the military presence in both of those countries. Any Anytime you're in a war for an extended period of time, I'm sure Vietnam vets have their own stories about the big fobs and the, the crap that was going on there, too. It probably was to a lesser degree, but the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I, my my brother-in-law, his dad was a Vietnam veteran, and he talked about that. You know, he talked that there's kind of a serious separation of the big, huge bases where people are just kind of chilling and drinking beer and playing volleyball and shit, you know. Um, we never got to drink beer, unfortunately. No, but we did experience that difference. You know, we roll yeah. into calf dirty with dirty uniforms with our combat trucks and, you know, people, you had MPs trying to pull people over for not having their lights on or not wearing a seatbelt or, you know, not yeah. being allowed into the defect because your uniform was dirty or, oh, or, or stuff yeah. like that. Um, yeah. It, there's a very, that's why they have that divide between, you know, fobbits and grunts. Yeah. You know, that's, that's how that starts because you have people out there that are working really hard. It's not that we don't have time to shower. It's that yeah. there may not be showers. <laughs> right. Um, or we don't have time to shower, or we only have so many sets of clothes, and we're spending every day getting dirty. You know, there's no way our uniform's ever going to look clean, even if we just washed it yesterday. Yeah. Um, so to have a pogue sergeant major standing at the entrance to the defect telling you, you can't eat this good food because you've been off the fob on a cop for six months, that, that, that creates that... Antagonism. Um, antagonism between yeah. the two yeah for sure and it's also it's like the the after effect of that is a kind of dis uh a disjointedness in people's idea of what they're doing there you know and so like the guys out in the front line getting shot at don't like i never felt like i had the army's support i mean i obviously we did in terms of like you know you know air power and you know we had plenty of ammo and stuff like that but, you know, I, I never felt that anybody back at CAF was giving a shit because they were just living the high life and trying to do the same thing we were doing. You know, they were just waiting to go back home, you know, especially at that point in the war. You know, everybody was tired of deploying all the time. Yeah, I thought that too for a while. But you know what really changed it was when General Abrams showed up and mm-hmm. he he took care of us. I mean, you know, we were his we were his like pride and joy. Yeah, we were the only unit in third ID actually getting in the shit. <laughs> so, yeah. We were his golden boys, you know. Yeah, I mean, props to him. He came out and talked to all of us. Mm-hmm. Couple times. Couple yeah. times, yeah. I remember uh, he came out and he asked us, like, what we needed. And we had gone to this stretch where all we had was, like, oh, the blueberry milk. muffins. Yeah. And, and uh, like, beef stroganoff every night. And we are like, we got to do something about the food. And then, like, the next day there was a Chinook with a couple pallets full of, like, at least different options for food and the milk and stuff like that. I yeah, think the he stole the milk he... from Zangabad. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. the rumor was he went to Zangabad and stole it all. Really? Oh, man, that's what's up. And to our listeners, uh, Major, or at the time, he was Major General Abrams, and he was the uh, he was the commander of Third ID as a whole, as the of the division. And about halfway through our deployment, he became the commander of um, RC, RC South, South. Yep. which yeah. is where we were assigned. So he was the two star general assigned of our whole AO. And at the time, we were the only Third ID unit that was regularly in combat. It's yeah. this little tiny company that was attached to a completely different unit out there, just getting in gunfights left and right so he mm-hmm. i'm sure he's like i gotta go see these guys i gotta see yeah. what's up yeah because the rest of the time was at calf mm-hmm. yes yeah well so. fob liberty was, oh yeah it's calf's neighbor yeah. yeah and there's a lot to be there's a lot of like pissing and moaning and grunting and groaning to do about that but i think the you know 
I think to to wrap this conversation up, and then I'll get off my my soapbox a little bit (laughs) until it comes up again. (laughs) But if you're one of these people that was on the FOB, eating Pizza Hut, and taking the golf cart to the NWR to shoot pool and play video games, just just own it, man. (laughs) Like they don't go around talking about how you were pretty much infantry or how you like went on one patrol with some combat engineers one time or whatever. Like just own it. Like yeah, I was there and you know it was pretty sweet. We had pizza and and and, and pool, and uh, nobody's gonna hate on you for that because you were just doing your job. Yep. You know don't try to don't try to pretend you're doing something. You're like and same thing for you infantry guys. Don't go around slinging your your war stories over the place, knowing full and well you're either either exaggerating or lying through your teeth. So, for those of you who weren't in the military or for civilians, the big flag is we. Anytime the word we comes into the story, be a little suspicious because we could be a fire team or we could be a battalion. So when we took contact every day and we had so many you know, casualties or whatever, you don't know what that we is. So yeah. anytime you need to hear the eyes, when somebody says, I almost got shot, that kind of thing, it, that, that separates it. Yeah, be proud of your service. You don't have to, yeah. you don't have to exaggerate your service. Be proud of it. If yeah. you never saw contact, you, know, you joined the military in a, time of, uh, in a time of war and at any moment that could have changed, you could have seen contact. Mm-hmm. There's no reason to be ashamed of anything that you did in the Army. No. Or the military in general, just yeah. don't lie about it. Yeah, yeah, man, just own it. And you know, and, the, and that's the thing I tell people all the time. People that are interested in, like, when I had classmates in school, they may be interested in joining. And I said, it doesn't matter what you do, like you're going to work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, I mean, my father-in-law is twenty-year Navy man. He spent ten years at sea, so half of his career was at sea, and that dude worked like a freaking dog. You know, mm-hmm. those twenty years. And so, you're nothing but respect for the people who are putting in the time. Now, if you're like a legal assistant or something, then, you know. <laughs> if you're a legal assistant, I appreciate your hard work for helping me buy my house from Afghanistan. Yeah. Thank, thank you to that that uh, that lonely hero out there in Kandahar. Uh, so, that about covers our uh, our opinion on our fellow soldiers and fobbits. Um, <laughs> uh, and, again, I say, if you served, thank you for your service. Like, be proud of your service. Um, but Glenn, what did you think about the Afghan military? <laughs> um, I remember after we took over as clearing team, they wanted us to teach the ANA how to clear because the idea was you had an Afghan person clearing and then an American clearing and then kind of so on and so forth. Right. I taught the same guy on four or five different occasions the same clearing stuff and he would walk up to you and be like oh i don't i don't know how to use this it's like bro i saw you here last week and you were fine like what do you mean and it was just i was unimpressed with it and then i remember we did that night raid where they tried to steal a pair of nods from us yeah and they like ted tucked them behind the humvee seat i don't know how i got there no No, we haven't seen them oh do you mean these nods right here like these are ours yeah okay oh crap um a couple of them were real good dudes always like always got love for afghan santa claus he was my dude yeah man but i mean overall not an impressive fighting force that yeah i mean they stayed stoned all the time man yeah like i remember one guy had like a packet of um cigarettes and he flipped open the top he's like pushing them out to offer one to me and half of the 
stuff in there was just big old fat doobies he had rolled and the other half was cigarettes and i'm and he's like you want the doobie i was like i'm good i can't sorry nah, i'm all right thanks so. do, I, do i want it or do i want it yeah yeah right exactly oh man but yeah it was um yeah they were always always blowed out of their mind on some kind of drug you know yeah. What was I like, mean, in the the police were way worse. The, about the police that, were sure. a lot worse than the army yeah. guys were. We yeah. helped the police do that shakedown on people in their poppy fields. Yeah, that yeah. Was early on, I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad we quickly abandoned poppy eradication as one of our mission sets. And I'm yeah, I can't wait to get Brian on Brian Kitching because I know he hated the poppy eradication mission, and I have a feeling he just told some general to fuck off. <laughs> and that we weren't yeah. going to do that mission anymore because it was stupid. Yeah, it was. It was a waste um, of time. Because we just, like, one day we just stopped caring. Yeah. We stopped going. Because we were burning poppy fields left and right for, like, two weeks. And then suddenly we're like, eh, fuck it. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, we're done here. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, that was a, a futile thing. Yeah, it's it's weird. You mentioned the clearing. Because those of us that cleared most of our interaction with the ANA was up front with their their clearing elements. Um, and it's just kind of the same perspective that you had. It just didn't seem like they wanted to do it. Yeah. Like it wasn't that they didn't have the equipment and they didn't have the know-how. In, fa- in fact, I would argue they knew how to look for the IDs better than we did because they never left. They knew exactly yeah, sure. where those things were Yeah. for the most part. Um, but it just seemed, I think maybe it was because they were the, from a different part of the country and they didn't really care. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know, but you know, I know there was a significant portion of the deployment where they would not go up front. We still had to clear up front, even yep. though they were supposed to be up there. It yeah. was like pulling teeth to get them to lead the mission, which at the time when they were supposed to do. Right. We were just supposed to be there to help. And we finally got to the point where we established that relationship. And then Ramadan started and they were like, we don't want to go out. We can't eat. And we would take them out on all day patrols. Like, we can't eat. What are you? And we're like, ah, sorry. Like. Here we oh, are. Oh yeah, gotta come. Yeah, that was the origin of the "We'll be back by ten o'clock." Uh, yep. Lie. Yeah, yep. yeah. We'll be back by ten. It'll be fine. Yeah. Before it gets hot in the day. And Never happened. Eleven thirty. You're looking at your watch, being like, <laughs> "We have five <laughs> clicks to go, and then another seven back." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, man, for sure. Well, I think another thing about the Afghan guys. And like, like you're saying, maybe they had a better idea where the IDs were or something like that. But they'd also, they've been fighting for years and years and years. Um, and also, there's also a direct correlation. I'm convinced. Um, this is just purely hypothetical. There's a direct correlation between the value that you place on human life and the quality of that life that you live. So if you're some dirt farmer in Afghanistan, like your, your self-preservation and your kind of like willingness to take those extra precautions isn't as ingrained as it is for us. Cause we can sit around the AC bench, watch Netflix, which is pretty easy going, you know? Yeah. And so, but for them, like living that hard, that hard, harsh life that, you know, I, I don't think they would have even cleared if it wasn't for us essentially like trying to force it on them, you know? Right. Maybe that's just, maybe I'm just pulling that out of my ass, but that was my impression. I think the unit we had with us was a big factor. Yeah. Because when I talk to other people, especially the guys that worked with um, ODA out by Balambi and stuff, they had like Afghans that cleared for them that were awesome. Mm-hmm. They were just like super squared away, knew what they were doing, super passionate. And we saw some of that with like ANCOP and like the the um, Afghan commandos when 
I saw them in or worked with them in 2017. It was a completely different animal. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it. I think it has a lot to do with that particular unit at that yeah. time. Yeah, and know. And a lot of guys that you know, like I've heard nothing but good things about the Afghan commandos. But the only people who ever worked with those guys was SF and you know stuff like right. that. So we yeah. we never got to work with them. You know, I got to work with them a bunch in seventeen. Uh, mm-hmm. And the first time, there's a section of the Afghan army called um, the KPF, the Coast Provincial Force, which is, they're all from coast, and they're all trained in um, whatever by American forces, and they live on an American base, and they are really good. And the first time I saw them hit a building, I thought they were rangers, because hmm. they're like oh, they're shit. like hitting the compound with ladders, hopping up, like one dude's like soloing on the roof with an MK-48, just like holding the whole place hostage while they breached the door like it was impressive and they just they moved like americans and they were kitted out like americans and they trained all the time Hmm. uh and it was such a complete 180 from what i had experienced at spurwangar where it was like we couldn't even get them go down to the range to do a fam fire yeah 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 for sure hmm but i don't know if that's just different units or it was because it was a big difference in time too i mean it's five years of us continuing to try to train those guys and also like guys who you know guys who weren't committed at that point we're not going to be hanging around anymore you know they're 15 years and 16 years into a war you know if they thought it was a good idea to make a paycheck then they get fucked up and like you know what maybe not i'll bow out but the ones who really care are hanging around and sticking with it you know maybe that's an element too i don't know it'd be interesting to find somebody that knows a lot more about that that we could talk to yeah i can't wait to get uh persons 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 on because um, his his career has taken him to the SFAB, which mm-hmm. is I main his his whole job is training, advising, and working with the Afghans. So I think he has he'll have some really good insights on that stuff. Yeah. Um. So yeah, the Afghans were reluctant to clear. We got stuck with it a lot, and so let's circle back to that conversation about clearing. Like you were talking, Phil, that Minotaur down. You know, getting to that doorway, thinking your heart's just gonna pump out of your chest. And one of the things we talked a lot about leading up to this interview was just that that fear, you know, that that like underlying fear that was always, always there, you know. I mean, talk about how that affected you, man. Like, like how did you cope with it? How'd you deal with it? You know, it's weird because you almost get into like after doing it for a while, you get like not used to the fear, but you get into this dichotomy where you wake up and you're like, all right, well, if this is the day I die, this is the day I die. Right. Or if this is the day I'm going to lose a limb, it's going to happen today, whatever, you know, I still have to go out and do it. But then you're also dealing with that, you know, like in the moment. So I could say that all day, you know, I could walk out and be like, okay, well, if it happens, it happens, whatever. But as soon as you saw that line of rocks in the road, you're like, oh shit, here we go again. Like right. there's that fear. And eventually you just have to find something like that you anchor to that kind of gets you to take that next step. And then the step after that and the step after that. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, mine was pretty much always just Mayo who, even after I would tell him, I'd be like, Mayo, dude, like just in case back up, he'd be like, nah, man, like if I'm going or if you're going, I'm going with you. So it was really that, that feeling that if something was going to happen to me, like he was right there with me mm-hmm. like, and no matter what, I was not taking that step alone. I think that was probably the most important role in the entire formation the yeah. guy right behind the clearing guy. For sure. Um, and not that the clearing guy wasn't probably equally, if maybe more important, but to have that person behind you with their M4 up, that's scanning, that that trusts you so implicitly that they're like, I'm not going to give you 
required six feet because I care about you. I don't want you to pop around a corner and get smoked. Right, like, exactly. And I can't tell you how many times I heard Tom tell me, if you go, I go. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I know Holt told Clark the same thing all the time. If you go, I go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which was against everything that we were trained to do. Um, but those NCOs, those phenomenal leaders, made the decision that if my guy is going to get hurt, I'm going to be there with him because I couldn't live with myself if he stepped around the corner and I wasn't there to protect him. Yeah. yeah. And it really, it says a lot about the quality of the team leaders that we had, that they were willing to take that step. You know, like, yeah, we got pretty lucky with, with E5s too. Yeah. We had phenomenal, phenomenal team leaders on that deployment. Yeah. Yeah. We got lucky there for sure. I think managing, you know, having that, like I said, that's something to anchor to that sticks out to me because Another thing about this conversation about fear is there's there's different kinds of fear that you experience, and you experience them all in 24 hours, you know. There's the fear that you have, like, laying in the bunk the night before a patrol in the bad country, and that, like, that sleepless, like, oh, shit, like, is tomorrow it? Do I die tomorrow, you know? And then there's, like, the immediate visceral fear of, you know, a close call, you know, an IED strike or something like that. But then there's that that fear, like you talked about, pushing into these places where it is it is accelerated because you didn't know what to expect in terms of IDs, you know. Yeah, and that's a problem when you know I don't want not to toot my own horn, but when you're good at clearing, you get the shitty missions to clear for. Yeah. <laughs> so I was always the asshole that had to clear for night raids. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting there, I'm like, all right, here we go again. If there's any time there's going to be like the IEDs turned on. It's at night. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And it was always that, you know, you're just laying in bed during the day. They're like, oh, go get some downtime for the night raid. And you're just laying there like, all right, well, this is it. My favorite thing about clearing on night raids was using a device that had LEDs and sounds to mark <laughs> positions and then being told use the to turn off. Earplugs yeah. that they gave you? No. Yeah. No. Yeah. But you still had to turn the, the, the LEDs off at least, even yep. if you use the sound. So doing something completely by sound without being able to do the most important thing about clearing, which is seeing the ground in front of you. Mm-hmm. Because the well, that's ID, like our, our yeah. Matt V's that had the, the backup noise when it backed up. Super like, stealthy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I forgot about that. We would infill and then put it on the put it in reverse and make <laughs> <laughs> like announcing to everybody within a square mile the where we were at. <laughs> I mean at that point, you know, nobody's driving in with a caterpillar diesel motor in their truck and they're like, Oh, that's you know, Muhammad who lives up the street. Like that's yeah. The Americans. Yeah, the Americans. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Which while we did all the walking, especially towards the end. God am I walking from the cop, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, another fear that I personally experienced was a help, like helplessness. Mm. You know, when part of your formation is in a firefight, but you are stuck in a marijuana field or you're stuck in a parallel grape row and it's really kicking off and you can't do anything. Yeah. There's yeah. nothing you can do. And it's, I think it's important we highlight how these formations looked. You know, we have 40, 50 people walking at six meter or six foot intervals between each other. Our formation would stretch two, three hundred meters from start, you know, start to finish. Yeah. Um, so one portion of our element could be in a really nasty gunfight, but 
we could be just chilling behind a building or in a grape row or next to a tree. And you're like, well, they're in a fight up there, but I can't go help them because I don't have the ability to move off of this cleared path without a mind detector. Yeah. So, yeah. Like, yeah. I ran into that issue uh, in one of the firefights we got into, like the firefight where that Afghan dude got shot going through that wall. And, uh, you know, so I, I had the 240, which this is a controversial opinion. Apparently we found out on social media, but I think it's a piece of shit in Panjway and had no business being fielded nope. out there. But I was humping the 240 one of the few times I did. And they were, you know, they took contact from a grape butt. I like hopped up on to the grape wall to try and get into the fight, but everybody was online at a wall shooting at the grape butt. And I was like, well, I can't shoot them all in the back, obviously. And I said, but, and I couldn't just run up there by a different route because it wasn't cleared, you know? So it, it, it really limited what you could do. And it made such a big, such a big experience. I mean, the guy up front got shot and killed and me and Hudden were back there just hanging out, waiting for it to simmer down, you know? So, yeah, I mean, at, at throat chop, when we first ran into that initial burst of fire right outside of the town, I was in a marijuana field with Todd and like there's bullets whizzing right by us. Like, and we can't do anything yep. because I have no idea where Tom and the Ford element is. I don't know if there's people because you can only see five, six feet in front of your face in those fields. Mm-hmm. Um, and Phil, you were, you were with us on throat shop and, no offense, but I always forget that you were <laughs> because you and Lloyd and Smothers and Kobos were all that you were the trail end of our element. Yep. And as I mentioned before, you know, these elements are super long. So I don't, I didn't even see you until the end. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, it was weird because you guys had advanced into pretty much like the next set of compounds at one point, And then the trail element came out of that same marijuana field and we got in contact. And you guys were already gone. I think that was before you got shot in the backpack. I got shot in the backpack before we got to the marijuana field. Okay. So then it was after. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so like through that whole firefight, you know, you guys had moved on and we're just sitting and waiting. And then when we finally get to the end where like Dennison and Tom and everybody gets hit, Lloyd's radio battery had died. So we had no idea what was going on. You know, we heard the initial explosion. Todd runs up. We thought we heard another one, but we couldn't tell. So you guys were all up front scrambling, trying to get everything done. And Lloyd Kobos and I are just sitting in the back past the A&A. Like, we are the last three people. Mm-hmm. No idea what's going on. We're just kind of hanging out, waiting. Finally, the A&A start moving. And we're like, all right, well, I guess, like, we'll figure out what's going to happen. Yeah, and we came sure. around that corner down into the creek. And then we came up and... That was it. it. And we get back and you guys had to fill us all in on everything. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, Luke's mentioned it before. And, you know, the Panjway was a fight of inches, you know, and up for me, that was arguably one of the top three worst days of my life. Yeah. But for you, it was, I mean, it was still wasn't a great day because you had, you knew that some of your buddies were hurt, but, you know, it was a very different experience for you. Um, Just for no reason other than where you stood in the formation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. And we've talked about it a lot, but I think it's just drives it home because it was so close. You know, I was uh, I was watching a video today, and this guy was talking about how in Afghanistan all the contact is at like 750 meters, 1,000 meters. And I'm like, no, not for us it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we had one engagement that was that far away. No, man. I mean, everything was within 200 meters, I'd yeah. say. And the majority within 100, you know, I would guess. 
Well, and I know the 138 guys were super stoked when they brought their their MGS, that big gun on top of the striker, and they're like, we're going to use this all the time. I'm like, I, I don't think you're going to get as much use out of it as you think you can, because <laughs> you can still only shoot what you can see. Yep. Yeah. You know, and with everything being flat, you can only see to the next collot or to the next, uh, you know, tree line. And even from the top of the hill, yeah. um, you know, you can only see so far. Um, yeah. Yeah, that was a big limiter for us. So why we couldn't really effectively use our snipers is why we, even if we had tanks, we couldn't have effectively used tanks. Um, yeah. That's why that Gustav was so, so critical because that yeah. gave us that that capability to have a major weapon system like that in our element that didn't have to be on tracks. And Luke, you are a quite the proponent oh. of the Carl <laughs> Gustav. So why don't you give us a little schooling on the greatest weapon so. system in Panjoy? One of the things that the goose did for us, man, is it completely changed how effective we could be at squishing fighting positions. Because we've talked a lot about, you know, we would get hit from these gray putts, we would get hit from compounds. So these guys were behind three foot mud walls. And so for the uninitiated, sadly, you don't understand how beautiful this thing is. It's a 84 millimeter recoilless rifle. Which means which is a fancy way of saying it's a bazooka, <laughs> but it's not a bazooka in that there's only one way to shoot it, which is out and explodes. It comes with a I can't remember how many different kinds of rounds. Tons, like five or tons six of rounds, yeah, yeah. That's just I mean, what we had. This yeah. what we had, yeah. They have these um, the, the 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 big ones for us that really made the difference was the air burst round. So you you dial you would you would get your range, you know, let's say 150 meters. You dial it in on the round, slap it in the goose dial it in on sight, shoot, and this thing would go out, up, and explode. So if they were, you know, uh, the first time I shot the Gustav, actually, they were shooting at us from one of the um, one of the little hills, mounds, why am I blanking? Cemetery things. What do yeah. we call those things? The shrines, yeah. yeah. So they were shooting at us from those positions, which was pretty common because they were elevated, and they can actually get a little bit of elevation on us. And so, you know, they were shooting at us from one of those shrines and, you know, there's mud walls and stuff and we couldn't do nothing through that airburst in. And it, I mean, it was the perfect shot. It landed right on top of that fighting position and that it, that, that did it, you know, that until the next one, <laughs> until the next, <laughs> until the next firefight, but right. that pretty much ended it. But that was a game changer for us. And then another thing that really made a difference was the, the round that has a delayed impact. So, you know, traditionally, like if you're using 40 mic mic or you're using uh, like an AT4 or something, as soon as that round hits where it's going, it's going to explode. Um, so it's, you know, it's good in that it's obviously going to mess somebody's world up if they're on the other side of a wall when an explosion goes off, but it's not going to, it's not going to kill them. It's not going to wound them. Uh, but the Gustav, you could set that delayed impact to round and it would actually push through these mud walls. It pushed through the gray putts and explode on the other side. And then they had another one, which we rarely used, I think because it was so expensive. And the and heat round. The heat round. Yeah. There's only so many of them. And those things were devastating. And I mean, they would essentially collapse a building. if you. It would punch through the wall, and it would just send out this massive concussive like ball of heat. And it would pull all the oxygen into this, into this source of heat and like crumble buildings. It was an intense weapon platform. And up until that point, pretty much the only people that had them were special operations guys, like Rangerback guys and SF. And I think we might have even got ours from SF. I think they 
I think they somehow managed to like gift them to us or, or let us sign them out or something. I, I can't, maybe I'm wrong in that, but that sounds right. Yeah. yeah it's, de- it's definitely no, but fuck, you know, yeah. it's definitely disappeared on us. <laughs> well, the, the beauty of the goose too was um like, it wasn't just, you know, with the AT4, like if you're carrying the AT4, that's one use and it's done. And yeah. then you're just yeah. carrying this empty tube on your back. The yeah, goose, you could have an AG carrying four or five rounds, you know, yeah. and that's so much more efficient than carrying just one or two AT4s and the laws that we had from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah exactly. that we had to had to blow up like three weeks into the deployment because they were <laughs> yeah. all like, no, like four of them fire fire and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can't remember which mission it was. But I remember Bally. He grabbed like four of them, and they all misfired. He was so mad. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, so yeah. that was like a couple days later. EOD took every one we had on the cop, drove them out into the desert, and blew them all up. Yep, that was a that was a big explosion too. It was fun. a big explosion. That was a good time. But yeah, the Gustav. I mean, in the Gustav's light, it weighs twenty pounds unloaded. You know, actually, the AGs ended up carrying more weight than I did because uh, it was awesome, man. 20 pounds. Are you kidding me? With just your kit and 20 pounds, I only had like 85, 90 pounds of shit instead of 110 to carry around, you know, yeah. when when I had the goose. Um, and then I cemented my my position as the Gustav gunner whenever we got into that first contact and I, I got that, uh, knocked him out of that um, shrine. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's such a good, oh, man, I, I just loved it. Because, I mean, what's... What's not fun about shooting something that explodes, you know? Well, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think the reason that, and I, I I, agree with you, I thought the 240 was, it's a great weapon. It works really well. It's definitely better than the saw as far as, like, the, the quality of the weapon and how well it works. Mm-hmm. But to use it in that environment, in addition to a saw, didn't make any sense. It didn't bring anything new to the fight because you couldn't yeah. move that 240 up and back in the formation and really make a difference. Um, but the Gustav, by having this really flexible two-man team of a Gustav and AEG gunner, and their light, mm-hmm. you know, it was an instant firefight ender. And you didn't have to get in the same kind of positions that you had to with a, you know, machine gun, because we could shoot a Gustav over people's heads. We just had to let them know it was coming. There's no risk yeah. to it. Um, yeah. So we could quickly get into position with that thing, and as soon as that thing went off anywhere near the Taliban, that firefight was over. Yeah. Uh, and that was not the case with a 240. Like, we could spit the 240 at them all day, and they'd keep chasing us all the way down the grape row, shooting mm-hmm. at us every 15 minutes. But if we launched an effective goose round at them, that took the fight out of them. Yeah, for sure. And, I mean, all you had to do is make sure there wasn't anybody in the back blast. Yep. Which we failed at a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> quite, quite a few Pfeiffer, times. Pfeiffer dislocated his shoulder, and, and uh, Ebro got his noodle rocked pretty bad because... Uh, it was at Haji Gold Muhammad, I think. No, it was the one before that, um, where we like essentially leapfrogged compounds. And oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That so was I also Haji Gold Muhammad. It was just a different time. Okay. Yeah. So I hopped up, I hopped up on the roof, and Ebro thought he was cool by like going downstairs and like sitting in this little nook behind the Ventura of the goose, and it like it rocked him. His noodle man. He was yeah. deaf for like five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. That was a fun firefight, man. Like, it was. there's there's not a whole lot. Uh, and Glenn, you were up on the roof with me, weren't you? For part of it, so I started in the like that intersection. You know, there was like the lowercase t intersection. So one yeah. end went into the compound, and then it was the roads. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was just I had I don't even remember who was out there with me, but I had two saws out there with me, and I was just in charge of kind of keeping them going. Um, and at one point, Dan Baker came out. And was like, yeah, they're all up on the roof, but I don't want to go. And I was like, all right, cool, man. Like. You hang out here. I'm gonna go shoot at stuff off on the roof, and then I went up right. there and I was with you for the rest of it. Yeah, it was that just was one fun. of those few times that we we got in early and we got there fast, and we set into the compound and 
we had fire superiority before the firefight even started. Right. We were kind of just was, waiting for it to happen. It was one of those rare moments where we were prepared and it wasn't like an ambush. Well, when I think about how towards the end of the deployment, we really, like I said, we, we well, the first thing we did was started rolling as a full platoon because at that point, a full platoon was like 12 people. You know? <laughs> but um, we rolled as a full platoon, but we just kind of hit this groove where everybody was hitting their wicks and you know that that firefight always stuck out to me because it went so well even though one of the 138 guys almost got killed (laughs) so i actually remember he was in the prone in this uh and they opened up the firefight with ak and the round hit like right in front of that dude's chest like he was it must have just hit the wall just below his where he was like kind of pushing himself up a little bit and I thought, I was like, fuck, he's dead. You know, like, these guys have been here for three days, and, and somebody's already died. Uh, but fortunately, he wasn't. Um, I remember after the fight, I just remember, like, hey, man, you all right? And he's like, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> I was like, dude, it's like, I thought you were dead, man. Well, like, you welcome know, to I was, Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah, this is a good welcome for you. Curtis almost got decked that mission, too. Yeah, it was almost the same kind of situation, too. Yeah. I, Glenn, you were up there with me when that happened, weren't you? Yeah, we, I mean, we were all just sitting there. I mean, I remember hearing rounds flying right over our heads, and we're just like, yeah, whatever, who cares? At this point, yeah. it's the end. Yeah. <laughs> well, I remember I was just standing up. Like, everyone else is, like, crouched or sitting behind the parapet, and I don't know why. I was just like, nah, I can see him better up here. So yeah, I'm I like, think you were, you were scoping for him, man. Probably. I don't know. Yeah. At that Let's point, say, I would compare it to, like, senioritis. You know, like, you're almost done. <laughs> yes. Just don't give a shit anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to shoot at somebody, man. I'd already dumped like two mags. I was like, well, let's just keep let's keep the fight going. Yeah. I have that sure. um that iconic picture of walking back onto Spurwin Gar with like flipping them the double birds and you yeah. can see how many three twenty rounds I had dumped. Just, yeah, your yeah. whole thing is empty. <laughs> oh yeah, your bandolier. Yeah. Well I remember yeah, I was just standing there and it was the loudest sound that I ever heard in my life that was not an explosion. Because mm. I mean the bullet passed Inches, inches, inches from my ear, um, and like I just instinctually dropped. I was like, "Oh, nope!" So fully yeah. standing up to fully on the ground, uh, <laughs> real quick. Yeah, well, I, was, I, I was, I was sitting at the top of the stair, and uh, you were only like maybe five or six feet away from me. So I heard the, I heard the soup boom, and it whacked that wall, and you dropped, and I was like, "Holy shit!" I was like, "Curtis, are you all right?" And he was like, oh, "I'm good, dude. I think I almost got shot." <laughs> <laughs> Like I think you almost did, man. Yeah, that they were. That, that was, was one of those few chances that I know that they had singled me out. Uh, <laughs> they weren't shooting at the Americans; they were shooting at Curtis. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Your lucky home dig only had iron sights. Yeah, cause they were like <laughs> they were probably a hundred, hundred twenty meters out. I don't know. Fire, yeah. At least that the ones that were hitting us from the north, the guys from the south, were pretty close. They were only like 20, 30 meters away. Yeah, they were. They were pretty close. Yeah. Ah, but it, other than that, it was it was it was good fun. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I got to shoot the Gustav twice in that firefight. It was really fun. Well, and we we would be remiss not to mention how you shot it the last time, where you had no ear protection, oh, so yeah. you you died. <laughs> you found that grape hut and you stuck a finger in your ear and fired that thing one handed. <laughs> and then what did yeah. you say after you fired the round? If my memory serves, I've turned to Curtis and I went, "America." <laughs> that is precisely, precisely what was said. And there is there's no exaggerating in this story. That is a hundred percent exactly how it went down, and, and that wonderful. proves that it's a recoilless rifle because I didn't. Yeah, it did, it's just like just like a paintball gun. Yeah, yeah. it's and like a paintball gun. I mean, the thing is huge. I mean. 
the round, the tip of the round, we'll use Baby Yoda here as an example. Nice. It's like <laughs> twice as big as this thing. Yeah, yeah it's, 80, it's 84 millimeters. You know? Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. Gorgo, by the way, or Grogo. Sorry. Grogo. Yeah, Grogo. Spoiler alert. Oh, sorry. Yeah, spoiler For those alert. who haven't watched it, yeah. Sorry. But, uh, oh, is that, is yeah. that season two? Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Thanks, guys. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> sorry, <dude. laughs> sorry I, was, I was using my ex-girlfriend's Disney Plus, and she must have found out and kicked me off of it. So. That's, uh, <laughs> that's tragic. That's hit, me, hit me up after I got you. I'll make it up to you. <laughs> well, so I think one of the things that um, it's shooting the Gustav actually makes me think of it, and I think it's a good note to end this, to end this uh, podcast on because we've talked a lot, and we've had some heavy episodes so far. And this one, you know, we talked about the fear and stuff. And last night we really got kind of heavy more than we did on this recording, which I'm kind of glad for because I can only do so much of that. <laughs> but one of the things we need to address too, that's is just sometimes, man, it's fun. You know, it's just like doing any other kind of drug. Like you, you get that high and like combat when it's going good and you're hitting that lick and you're really, and especially when you're sitting still and you ain't having to hump a gear, it can be fun. You know, it can, it can be fun in that it's this crazy experience that completely just warps your entire body with adrenaline and you know when you're shooting 84 millimeter gustav at a great putt and you see that thing explode on the other side of that wall it's satisfying feeling you know so what are some fun moments for you guys that you remember it's all you phil (laughs) (laughs) maybe i'm crazy maybe that's the problem Um, I mean, Haji Gul Muhammad, that last mission was probably my favorite because that was that was just an adrenaline rush. It was fun. We had the upper hand from the initial start. Um, a lot of mine was just like the shenanigans on the cop. Like we had a lot of fun. I remember pouring uh, chem light all over golf balls and you would just hit them with a baseball bat out over like southern Afghanistan just fun stuff like that sitting out at like the smoke pit that someone had made a rocking chair in you know just between, like the, uh, the camaraderie sport days yeah ultimate frisbee yeah. that yeah. broke ankles and uh oh my god yeah. that was a terrible idea it's yeah. so bad ultimate, <laughs> yeah, ultimate terrible idea ultimate frisbee on a lz with gravel was bigger than your <laughs> fist yeah yeah but yeah, you had to have fun, and even you had to have fun on patrols too. You know, you had to you know mess around, joke around. I mean, obviously when stuff got serious, we we buckled down and got serious. But and, you know, sometimes combat was fun if it wasn't that wasn't a bad firefight. Uh, and uh, you know, you had to have a good time, and I you know we made the most of it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, if I had to pick the most fun moment of the deployment, I would have to. I probably have to point the Haji Gul Muhammad too, just because it was so controlled. It was yeah. a firefight where you got to have fun. Um, you never really, went, other than that one moment, never really felt like you were in imminent danger. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm trying to think when else might have just been fun. Um, when you guys had to fill in that pothole with uh, concrete. That is oh, the opposite. That? that is the complete opposite <laughs> of the word fun. That one was fun for me. I just got to sit in the truck. Oh my oh, god, dude. that was so stupid. Oh. So, all right, we'll go ahead and tell this story because it's appropriate. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> so, I think it was it was third platoon hit an IED with their truck, and not a big one, like a little guy. I think it maybe ripped their tire off. So, like. It was, a, it was clearly an ID meant for, like, a motorcycle or whatever. It wasn't meant for an MATV. 
So we go out to do the the blast damage assessment, a BDA. And there's it's a paved road, and there's a big hole in the asphalt, and there's a decent size hole in the dirt under it. And we're like, well, that sucks. We'll have to, you know, it's going to have to get fixed. Um, but, you know, in our minds, we're like, well, we have combat engineers, and we have, like, literal MOSs that do this. Uh, and I don't know, I know it was way above Spurwingar level that said, no, fix it now. Pour concrete in the hole and fix it. We're like, we don't have concrete. We don't carry concrete around. They're like, don't worry. We're going to send 2nd Platoon to uh, Zangabad, and they're going to load up with concrete, and you're going to bring it there. So they, they brought us concrete in bags, dry concrete, and nothing to mix it with. No buckets, no wheelbarrow, no nothing. Just dry concrete. We're like, what do you want us to, to do with this? Make concrete. In, in what? What are we supposed <laughs> to make it in? And like this went up and back the chain of command like six times. And finally, like the final word was, pour that fucking concrete in the hole. Pour water in the hole. Mix it in the hole. Yep. And it's important to note where we were. Oh, my God. We were in Najat. Yeah. We were on the <laughs> paved road on the east end of Najat. Like, we could see tree lines. We could see places we'd been shot at from. We're wide open and exposed. Uh, we have, like, ambush. 17 guys or however many we had out on the ground, like, doing manual labor. So, like, pulling water out of a creek, mixing concrete in a hole, breaking open concrete bags, pouring them in a hole. 110 so degrees. 110 yep. in degrees full outside. Kit. In, full in full kit. kit. And But none of us are carrying weapons mm-hmm. because we're our hands are full doing this. We got all of our rifles stacked up along the side of an MATV. Like, the gunners and the MATVs are on guard, and there's, like, one or two people managing uh, carrying their rifles. But every other than that, we're all defenseless in the most yeah. dangerous part of our AO, yeah, filling a hole in the stupid. ground <laughs> improperly with the wrong tools for the job. Because some general somewhere along chain of command said, I want the whole fucking fixed. And I can't yeah. afford to wait for combat engineers. And what happened that night? The Afghans pull, got a tractor out there. They ripped it up. And then a week later, the combat engineers fixed it. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that just speaks to the disconnect, man. There's such a disconnect from like the lived-in, on-the-ground experience. Because we all knew it was fucking stupid. And we all knew it was a waste of time. And we all knew that we, I, I can't believe we didn't get hit doing that like I, it's, I mean, it's still, it's a it still blows my mind yeah i think yeah. the only reason we didn't is because we had four or five trucks that were like right around us and they yeah. usually didn't fuck with us in the truck too, uh, too much and then jot they did though they hit the yeah. trucks all the time yeah, yeah that's where burl took a freaking bullet to his dome. dome yeah yeah to his helmet we should clarify yes yes he's a, yes he's, a yeah. he's, he, he's alive and yeah. he's okay but uh a little rattled understandably. yeah <laughs> yeah that same firefight I almost got shot taking a piss off the side of the truck yep <laughs> mm-hmm which Glenn, you almost got shot. Taking yeah, a time, yep. Didn't that you? was um, I was behind the tree, so I think that was our first time in the jot. Which I think mm-hmm. we might have talked about this a little bit back and forth on Facebook. That was when Xanadine was his name, the ALP or the ANP commander in our AO. Yeah, I think that, that sounds I think familiar. That's his name. Um, that's when we like we were on QRF. We got the word that he got shot, so we rolled out and. We walked into Najat, and I think that was the first time we'd ever been there. And there was one point where there was a a grape row. I think it was to the west of us because we were walking south. I think it was to the west. Just lit us up. And there's like two sections of wall and a tree. And everyone just went behind the two walls and didn't leave me enough room. So I just laid down behind this tree. 
And we got back to the base and they were basically like, yeah, no, man, that tree was getting ripped to shreds. And you're like, ah, cool, great. Thanks. Perfect. Yeah. Appreciate you guys. <laughs> were you actively pissing whenever uh, they started shooting at you? No, I was just, dude, we were just walking along. Like, we were still in our file, moving along, and all of a sudden opened up the PKM and everyone uh, just, I thought I thought you got shot at while you were pissing. That's for the story I heard. <laughs> no, who was it? Somebody, um, Hewlett and Nagurn, when we did the blocking position. Oh, oh yeah, that's yeah. what it was. Um, yeah. I can't remember which one of them it was. One of them went around the corner of the building, was pissing, and got shot at. Yeah. And then the next yeah. time we went out there, he was like, hey, come look at where I got shot at yesterday and got shot at again from the <laughs> same exact place. <laughs> and I just remember Nitz being like, just don't go over there anymore. Yeah. I almost, uh, you know, there's the there's a great picture of you, which obviously we can't put on Instagram, but it's it's so good. It's that's if you the take same, a, the fabled the same combat mission. dump. Oh, is it? Okay, yeah, yeah, so yeah, there was two or three of the the buildings in the compound, so they were on one end getting shot at, and I was over here mm-hmm. taking a shit. <laughs> well, we have just, photographic evidence of the act. My, yeah, so I know my own good. business with my pants down, just taking yep. a dump. It's yep. so good. It's such a good picture, man. It's a, it's a very oh, infantry photograph. <laughs> it is. That, that, they should just show that to people who, whenever they sign the line, okay, here's what your job looks this like. Is, all right. Oh, 11 yep. Bravo. Here you go. Yeah. There you go. Yep. Um, so, Phil, you got out pretty, and I'm calling you Phil, and I apologize. His name is Glenn. His last name is Phil. So we just always called him Phil, so I apologize. <laughs> um, you got out like what, six months after we came home. Yep. Um, so we came home. What December seventh, I think. Yeah. Twelfth or uh, we? I think we left Afghanistan on the seventh. Got home on the twelfth or something like that. So I went on terminal leave in July of 2013, which was, uh, I mean, seven months pretty much to the day after we got back. Yeah. Um, I joined the National Guard actually after. It was probably. I would say a couple a couple weeks to a month, month and a half after we got back. Um, that's when everything with ISIS started to happen. And I started getting letters from the DOD that was basically like, hey, you haven't, you know, gotten contact with your inactive reserve component unit, which was the 72nd Legal Affairs Battalion. Ooh. Um, so I was like, you know what, man, if we're going to have to go fight ISIS, I'm not doing it with a bunch of JAG officers. Like, I don't even know what I would do. Right. Uh so I went and signed up with the local, like National Guard Infantry Unit, which was the Second Battalion, One Hundred Eighth Infantry Regiment. And how was that? Uh, it was different. So you show up feeling like the new guy, but you're also one of five dudes that's been in an actual combat situation, and the other four have come from active duty too. So it's it's this weird mix of like I'm the new guy, but I also know more than you almost. Uh, same culture though, like, you know, a lot of the dudes have full-time jobs, but they still have that same like dark infantry humor mindset, kind of like, you know, oh, I'll kiss you on the mouth right now if you want. And it's like, all right, man, cool. Right. Um, But I did two years in the National Guard and I got out. It just wasn't, it wasn't doing it for me. Uh, And it, I, I pretty much just did it as like a a transition period. So I found people with the same mindset who lived locally to me versus just getting out and basically going cold Turkey. Right. And so what are you doing these days? So I am in my second year of my master's in social work program, which 
puts me on a fast track to be a licensed social worker, um, hopefully within the VA system. So right now I'm an intern on their inpatient behavioral health unit. So I deal with anyone who has um, like thoughts of suicide, any addiction they want help with getting recovery for, uh, severe mental illness, any PTSD, really anyone who just feels like they're having too hard of a time for them to deal with on their own, they can come up and stay. We only have like 15 beds. And I mean, it's, it's a locked unit. So you're coming in, you're not, you're not leaving until your psychiatrist says you can leave. Sure. Um, but it's really just to get you set up with programs that will help you and get you back on the path that you need to be successful in life. Cool. Yeah. I mean, and I mean, you must have some pretty interesting insights given your background and then working with particularly veterans in that kind of space. I mean, is there anything that kind of stands out to you that you've experienced since you got back and you started working in that sector? It almost, you know, I was like a certain part of my thought process was like, it'll make it easier. Um, but really, it makes it harder. It makes it harder because you have to, to a certain extent, you know, you have to show you care and express your empathy, but you have to pull yourself back from feeling like you are one of them. Yeah. You know, so I can't go in and be like, look, dude, I'll do anything you need to get you better because the VA has, you know, certain resources and programs and there's red tape, you know, it's a federal entity. So it's, Hey man, here are the things I can offer you. And they're like, well, I don't want any of those. And it, you have to be able to be like, look, man, this is what we can offer you. You can take it or I can help you find something else. Right. So I think it's, it's hard not being able to do as much as you want to. Hmm. Do you think you'll stay with the, the VA whenever you're done? You know, if you'd asked me like a month ago, I would have said yes. Um, mm -hmm. I've seen enough kind of intricacies of some things that it's kind of been a reminder that these people are not veterans. So they don't, they don't necessarily get it in the same way that a veteran would. Sure. Um, I've had, you know, a few disagreements with like the treatment team that I work with just because of how they, they perceive a veteran's actions versus how I do. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know. The VA is a great place to be for social workers. They are the number one employer of social workers in the United States, but. Take a second and process that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like the, the Department of Veteran Affairs is the number one employer for social workers in America. I mean, there's a lot of vets, don't get me wrong, but not that many. there's not that many. So yeah. for such a few, such a small percentage of the population to need that kind of help, um, that's, that's a hell of a statement there, man. Yeah. I mean, it's the truth, you know, it's never, they, there's technically separate like diagnoses of PTSD. So you can have PTSD uncomplicated. You can have complicated PTSD. Pretty much all combat PTSD is complicated. Hmm. You know, you never just have PTSD. Yeah. There's always something more with it. So, like, I pull out my old medical records. I didn't understand how any of it worked back then, but, like, there's five or six mental health diagnoses on there. So you're like, oh, all right. Well, I think that's a big weakness within the VA system right now is they – they're very uh, single-minded, and they drift between what their focus is. So, uh, you know, when they see PTSD symptoms on a person, they tend to ignore other things like TBI. Mm -hmm. um, like, well, the, the the symptoms are too similar, so we're just going to go with the one that makes the most sense. When it's it's not just one thing. Yeah. 
Um, you know, we were talking yesterday about the line charges and all the explosions that we endured. Um, anybody has an issue from our deployment should be able to attribute it to a TBI. Um, yeah. You know, just people got blown up. People were five feet away from line charges. There were IEDs that went off that under people's feet were next to driving in trucks. I mean, it's firing the Gustav. I mean, you're not supposed to fire the Gustav more than a few times because of a risk of T- TBI. Mm-hmm. So all, I mean, this was, and this was constant. Yeah. Um, so to simply blank, it's like, well, well, they saw combat, so it must be PTSD and it's not a TBI. It's, uh, I saw, I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out because I, I've, I've observed that to you. And it, I mean, it's important to remember too, you know, the, the VA is a federal organization. So as administrations change, so does the mission of the VA, depending on what they want to focus on. Yeah, right. And it's federal, so everything's going to move slow. Yeah, nothing, no change is going to happen quick, so it's all going to be super gradual. I mean, even the conversation about PTSD has changed so much in the past, well, basically since we were in Afghanistan. Yeah. Because I feel like in, inside of the Army... But outside of the army and stuff like that, you know, 10 years ago, it, if you had PTSD, you were like the guy that was like collapsed in the corner. Like, oh, my God, I can't function and be a member mm-hmm. of society, you know. Right. And that's what the media, which I have a big beef with how the media portrays PTSD and, and veterans and stuff like that. But um, <clears throat> but now it's like it's slowly people are beginning to kind of understand that it's more complicated than that. And it's varying degrees and different guys have different issues with different things. And it's not the classic you know, there's the show, uh, the Punisher on Netflix. I hated, I hated how they showed the veterans in that show. It made me so mad because like, of course the guy was crazy and he wanted to like blow himself up or whatever. And he couldn't hack it. And I hate that portrayal because it's more complicated than that. You know, it's not, it's not that simple. Maybe that's what it looks like for some guys, but it's not what it is for everybody. You know, that's the way it's the most cinematic too. That's yeah. Exactly. that, That awe factor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so what, what's next for you, Phil? Uh, well, I've got one more semester of school, and then it's who knows from there. I have to take a, a state licensing exam, and then it's job hunting. Fun. Yeah. I'm in the same position. Love it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now, now's a great time to enter the job market, especially if you're trying to get a job working from home, by the way. Yeah, oh, for sure. <laughs> Uh, well, Phil, we're about to wrap this thing up. So what we'd like to do is give you an opportunity to say whatever the fuck you want. Anything oof. that you didn't get a chance to say that maybe we skipped over that we plan to talk about. Anybody you'd like to say something to within, you know, reason and um, so <laughs> whatever. Um, but this is kind of like your your chance. I mean, the floor is yours, man. You know what? I think I'll keep it simple. Um so what you guys are doing is something that I don't know if you realize the impact it will actually have. There's a lot of guys out there who don't get to tell their story and just being able to sit down and tell your story is so beneficial for people. So I'm just going to say thank you. Oh, thanks man. We appreciate yeah. that. You know, that's, I think you're going to find that it helps a lot of people. I didn't anticipate the volume of, impact that it's already people are reaching out and reconnecting and stuff and it's it's been pretty cool man so we yeah. appreciate that appreciate and, and the we vote th- of confidence yeah exactly we we appreciate the vote of confidence 
we appreciate you being willing to jump on so early. I mean, you haven't even seen an episode other than episode one, so you don't even really know where, you know, but you know, <laughs> you, you, you trust us. We appreciate that. Of and uh, I, we didn't mention it before, but you're our very first remote guest. So thanks for being the guinea pig for the podcast in a box. Yeah. Hey, it worked great, guys. Awesome. Cool. All right, man. Thanks All so right, much. Guys. Cheers. Nash University is a military-friendly college offering tuition discounts for over 75 programs with 100% online options. Visit nu.edu slash project.